This is Upfront Tech. I'm Brian Edwards Teekert. Continuing our series on power, politics, and the tech industry, we're about to take a deep dive on monopoly power, what it looks like in tech, whether our laws and regulations are up to dealing with it when it comes in the form of a tech company. And exhibit one is the mighty, mighty Amazon. Right now, it controls 43% of online retail sales in this country. That number is only expected to grow. It acquired 400-plus new brick-and-mortar storefronts when it bought Whole Foods this summer. And it's also become a major player in everything from video production to web hosting services to making actual media devices and smart speakers. If you are a consumer, it's cheap and it's convenient. So what could possibly go wrong? Our guest explored that question in a 24,000-word article for the Yale Law Journal, Amazon's Antitrust Paradox. Lena Khan now is Director of Legal Policy for the Open Markets Institute. Welcome. Thank you. So before we get into the specifics of Amazon, I would like to start with history, and specifically, where are laws and trusts on monopolies come from? Sure. So we've passed the first antitrust act as a country in 1890. It was called the Sherman Antitrust Act. And it was passed against the backdrop of the Industrial Revolution when a lot of new technologies had revolutionized commerce, but it also radically shifted the balance of power and led to huge concentrations of wealth and power in industrial trusts. And so there was a general concern that the political economy of the U.S. was no longer open and fair and was no longer going to be hospitable to independent businesses, to entrepreneurs. And so we passed antitrust laws in part to make sure that our markets remained open and that power and opportunity was as distributed as as required for economic democracy. So one classic example would be the railroad barons of the time. Exactly. So the railroads were this fantastic technology, but they were effectively a natural monopoly. And you saw the railroads abuse their power by discriminating amongst farmers and, and producers who were trying to use their facilities and um, by you know charging exorbitant rates. And so we passed, in addition to the Sermon Antitrust Act, the Interstate Commerce Act, um, which introduced a new set of regulations that prohibited railroads from abusing their power, kind of required railroads to offer equal access on fair and open terms. So the other thing that emerged at the time was vertically integrated trusts. This would be like Standard Oil, the source of the Rockefeller family's fortune. What did those look like? Yeah, so you did have these vertically integrated trusts where you would have a company that was, you know, dominant in a particular line of business, like uh, producing oil, but then it would also try to build, uh, buy out the infrastructure along the supply chain to try and create these very integrated entities. So we saw the rise of these kinds of integrated companies and, and saw how that could lead to certain kinds of abuses of power and undermine competition. So what's the abuse of power there? Like, I understand how if you have a monopoly on oil refining, you can jack up prices on consumers and you can keep prices low for producers. But what do you get out of having the oil fields, the refiners and the gas stations all under the same roof? It gives you the power to undermine your competitors in a new way, because if you are a both a producer and now own all of the, you know, gas refineries, then you can ensure that when your competitors in the producer space are not given equal terms 
um, when they're kind of trying to do business with your refinery. So you can use your dominance in one sector to undermine rivals when they're trying to do business with you in a different line of business. I see. So like each monopoly becomes the opening move in establishing an adjacent monopoly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a good way to think of it. Okay, so uh, enter the era of trust busting and anti-monopoly regulation. We fixed it all, right? (laughs) So we passed a series of antitrust laws um, that were generally stated and quite broad and expansive. And we had different iterations of what enforcement looked like. But generally, you know, these were political laws. These were not kind of a technical economic policy. They were animated by the idea that concentrations of economic power undermine democracy and that we want to keep markets open. And so through both the 1920s and into the Depression, we really enforced antitrust laws with an eye to the structure of a market, whether that market was open. We also looked at issues like local control about whether certain kinds of consolidations of power would undermine local control. In addition to the the big antitrust statutes, so that's the Sherman Antitrust Act, that's the Clayton Act, and the Federal Trade Commission Act, the latter two which were passed in 1914. We also just had a host of more piecemeal policies and statutes that basically tried to promote competition in a host of other ways. So it wasn't just the antitrust statutes. You also had, for example, a whole set of pricing laws that limited how a big middleman or a big chain store would be able to use its pricing power to potentially undermine competition. So we we really saw a flourishing of kind of like anti-monopoly laws more generally, even beyond the big antitrust statutes. So I want to like, try to now draw the parallel to some of the large tech companies we've had emerge because one of the founding mythologies of the age of internet commerce is you don't have the same barriers to entry that you did in the industrial era. It is very expensive to set up a competing railroad that will serve all the same places. But according to the mythos, anybody can set up their own website and start competing online. That's right. That is the prevailing myth. And this is something that we saw even with the Federal Trade Commission's Google investigation, the kind of ultimate defense there was competition is just one click away. And that's something that you hear quite often when talking about the dominance of the tech platforms. I think that's misguided for a couple of reasons. One is that you know, a lot of these platforms are accompanied by certain kinds of network effects that make these markets winner take all, which means that a company that's able to establish an early lead ends up kind of generating this lock-in effect where there's actually a lot of stickiness to to users um, kind of using this product and it, it does make it more difficult or less likely that a user will switch over. There are also these self-reinforcing advantages of data. So once a company has amassed a sufficient amount of data, the ways that it can improve its services and then also provide highly tailorized and, and personalized services um, is, is quite intense in ways that, again, makes it difficult for, for new entrants to compete. Um, I think this is also um, it, it, I think this is also a, partly a feature of the fact that right now users are not, that data is not portable, right? So it's not like if I wanted to switch from Google to Bing, I would be able to ask Google to give me all of my search history and then go over to Bing and kind of put feed that search history into Bing. So the fact that data is not portable in this way means that there actually is a pretty decent barrier to entry. So Google is a superior search engine because Google already knows more about you than any of its competitors. Exactly. How do we think about Amazon in this context? They're not creating a new service like Search. They're just selling stuff. 
They are just selling stuff, but they're increasingly doing much, much more than selling stuff. I mean, one argument that I make in the paper is that one way to think about Amazon is as a series of infrastructure services. So most of us engage with Amazon um, through its retail platform, um, which, you know, in addition, where in addition to selling goods directly, it also hosts millions of individual merchants um, who are also selling to us. So you have this online platform that's serving as a form of infrastructure as the railroad of the 21st century in some ways. So, you know, in the same way that a farmer or an oil producer 100 years ago would have to ride the railroads to get to market, independent producers that want to reach consumers online have to ride Amazon's rails. Alongside that, Amazon also has a extensive physical delivery and warehousing network um, where it increasingly provides a lot of the delivery services to many independent producers. So this is another form of infrastructure that it has built out. And then thirdly, it also is a leading player in cloud computing services. So Amazon Web Services is also serving as a form of infrastructure. And one argument that I make is that the ways that these forms of infrastructure interact with its other all the other lines of business that it's now entering has anti-competitive implications. So that kind of describes the power that Amazon has, but doesn't actually describe the abuse. Because from a consumer's point of view, buying stuff through Amazon is generally cheaper and more convenient than through any other channel. It's not like paying extortionary prices to ride the railroads in the late 19th century. That's right. I think the ways in which Amazon abuses its power, it's often through its buyer power. So, you know, in addition to monopoly, which which looks at the relationship between a company and and consumers, monopsony is really concerned about the buyer power. So, you know, how, what Amazon's bargaining power looks like vis-a-vis all of the suppliers and producers that are bound to ride its rails. And so they're the ones who really suffer the brunt of Amazon's anti-competitive conduct. I give a few examples in the paper, but one looks at the way in which Amazon uses the data that it collects on companies using its services to then undermine them as competitors when Amazon chooses to go head to head with them. And you see this constantly in across Amazon's businesses is that it's collecting so much information on all of the vendors that are using its platform. And then it's using all of those insights to then go compete with these vendors head on in ways that makes it makes it a very unlevel playing field. So if you're a company that produces something, you can list your product in Amazon's platform. It's going to help you reach a lot more consumers than you would otherwise. But meanwhile, Amazon's getting all the data that says, oh, people who buy your stuff also like this stuff. They wind up having a lot more marketing intelligence than you do yourself. Exactly. So you have all these independent producers that are undertaking the initial risk of testing out products and then kind of Amazon swoops in and uses that insight to enrich its own businesses, often at the expense of the independent vendors. So it'll go head to head with them, it'll undercut them in price, it'll dock where they show up in search results. And so there are a lot of levers that Amazon has to affect whether another seller's products are visible or, you know, whether how high they show up in search rankings. So according to a host of producers and sellers, Amazon uses those levers pretty extensively. But for a lot of independent producers, entering business wouldn't have been possible in the first place without a platform like Amazon. Who have they actually put out of business and and how do you balance those two things against each other? 
it's not so much that they use their data advantage to drive out of business, but they use their data advantage to act in an extractive manner. So, uh, you know, there's a conflict of interest in Amazon's business model, but the end result that Amazon wants is not to drive out all these other merchants because in fact, you know, it it has its platform in order to serve these merchants, but it's just a question of extraction of insight from these other producers. And so, you know, in, in many instances, these companies have to kind of surrender their best selling products to Amazon, but are still able to kind of trudge along with all their other services. And I think it's not kind of an either or question of like, do you use Amazon or do you not use Amazon? It's just a question of, you know, is there really only one platform where you are selling your goods? I mean, these a lot of these companies have tried to set up independent channels of distribution, but find that they're really not able to sustain a business without all of the traffic that comes from Amazon. So they're kind of in this bind where, um, you know, they're they're relying on this company. They are they feel like they're bound to use it, but they also realize that there are hazards there. Is there any evidence that Amazon intends to reach a point of sufficient dominance that it could actually do predatory pricing? In other words, jack up all the prices that it achieved market share by suppressing? There's already evidence that Amazon's raised prices after um, depressing prices. So this is something that we saw in the book industry. The New York Times has reported on this, where there are several segments where Amazon had initially dropped prices. And then as competition thinned, it has slowly and steadily raised prices. We also saw it engage in predatory pricing in the diapers sector. So this is a incident that I flesh out in my paper. Um, and this is a company that Amazon arguably kind of did drive out. Um, so diapers.com was this startup that was doing really well. And Amazon initially sought to buy diapers.com and the founders rejected its offer. And then Amazon engaged in this like months long aggressive pricing war where it was tracking the pricing of, of diapers.com and constantly undercutting it in ways that were ultimately not sustainable for a startup. And I think this gets to another issue, which is that Amazon has basically gotten a free pass from investors to not make money, right? So for the first decade in which it was in business, it, it constantly reported losses and basically focus its energies on expanding market share at the expense of profits. And that's not a really a viable strategy for most other companies. So Amazon can afford to engage in pricing wars to an extent that other companies just can't keep up with. And after basically squeezing diapers.com, it again offered to buy it. At this stage, diapers.com founders relented, sold their business to Amazon. And then over the course of a few months, Amazon started raising prices on diapers. It kind of started cutting back a lot of the discounts and, and stopped accepting new members and its specialty programs. And so that's kind of a pretty classic example of engaging in predatory pricing. A lot of people are listening to this thinking, oh, there ought to be a law. Is there? <laughs> uh, there, there has been a law. Uh, there had been a law against predatory pricing. And technically, this law is still on the books. But due to a broader intellectual shift in antitrust enforcement, there is now a presumption against predatory pricing. So embedded in the Supreme Court's law is the idea that predatory pricing is highly irrational and therefore rarely exists. And so they've introduced a legal test, um, a burden of proof that is in practice extremely difficult to meet. And so predatory pricing cases have plummeted and it's now effectively a dormant area of antitrust law. You pin that turn in jurisprudence to a very specific moment, uh, the 1978 publication of a book by Robert Bork, who went on to become a rejected Supreme Court nominee, called The Antitrust Paradox. 
What was his argument? Why was it so influential? So his argument followed a couple of decades of growing legal scholarship questioning our approach to antitrust and offering up the idea that the only proper goal of antitrust is to promote consumer welfare, um, largely in the form of, of lower prices. And so that that thinking really shifted us from a regime that had promoted a whole variety of political economic ends that really looked at the structure of a marketplace to a regime that really only looked at one outcome, namely whether prices are higher or lower. And this shift really meant that we were no longer examining how power actually gets exercised in a marketplace. And I mean, the reason I focus on Amazon in my, in my paper is not so much because I'm trying to vilify the company in particular, but because I think Amazon offers a particularly elegant example of the shortcomings of our current antitrust regime, in part by showing how a company can come to monopolize the economy without triggering anti-monopoly laws. Because if you if you basically are build your entire business rhetoric and strategy around lowering prices for consumers, you can effectively disable the antitrust regime. And so I think that's the kind of world in which we're living now and that Amazon has been able to exploit. But if your end game, your long term goal is to be able to use your eventual monopoly power to jack up prices uh, and extract a lot of value from your consumers, wouldn't the antitrust laws we do have kind of come into effect? I mean, the predatory pricing laws technically require you to be able to show that a company did, in fact, go on to raise prices or there is a high likelihood that it would be able to. But in practice, it's actually companies are able to raise prices in much more sophisticated ways than simply raising the price on the very same good that they docked the price on. So companies are now able to engage in price discrimination where, you know, different consumers see different prices for the same good. They're able to raise prices on different segments in order to subsidize their losses in a particular segment. So rising prices might actually be more difficult to detect than current law actually assumes. And more generally, I think it's a question of, you know, at what point do you intervene? In the Clayton Act, one of the um, major antitrust statutes, we're supposed to guard against concentration and against kind of at an, in an incipient way. So even incipient concentration is something that we look at. And so embedded in the antitrust laws is that we that these laws are supposed to safeguard against the rise and establishment of growing power. It, these laws are not simply supposed to come into effect when this power seems abusive. Setting aside what's legally possible under the current interpretations of American statutes, what's like the ideal policy remedy? I mean, I don't think there's anyone disputing the fact that a lot of what Amazon has done and a lot of the way they've built their business is through innovations. You don't want to toss that out with the bathwater. Sure. And I, I don't think anybody you know would deny that. I think with Amazon, there are a couple of issues one is its vertical integration. So the fact that it is so integrated across all of these different lines of businesses and how it's able to cross leverage its advantages across lines of business. So I think one way to address Amazon's power would just require certain structural separations to try and eliminate the core conflict of interest that's currently inherent in its business model, where it's competing with the very companies that are dependent on its platform. So I think that structural principle would be pretty straightforward um, at the level of policy. And it's a principle that we've had in previous eras. I think in, in other, other words, instances, break it up you know, there are a lot companies. of benefits to scale. And so in those cases, you would not necessarily want to break Amazon up. You would just want to make sure that there are policies in place that 
prevent it from abusing that power. So in the same way that with railroads, we introduce certain non-discrimination principles. I think that's something that you could also imagine with Amazon. So in other words, they couldn't do that uh, price discrimination where they show a more affluent consumer or a more desperate consumer a higher price than someone else searching for the same thing at the same time. That's right. And you would also apply a similar regime with producers that are using its platform. What you're talking about is almost like public utility regulation. I've covered rate setting hearings here in California for power companies. And they're companies that are basically only selling one thing, electricity. And they are incredibly elaborate, drawn-out proceedings. I shudder to think of how complicated the regime would be that would start regulating the pricing by a company like Amazon that sells everything. So anti-monopoly offers a spectrum of policy um, solutions. It's kind of, you know, it's, there's a kind of toolbox and public utility regulations that involve price setting is one of them. But I think there are ways in which you can introduce kind of a non-discrimination regime, a regime that requires fair and equal access without getting into the business of setting prices in a, in a very intricate way. So is there a push to change the interpretation of existing U.S. law to create more flexibility about responding to the market power big tech companies have? There is a push. And I think over the last year, we've started seeing more and more elected officials become interested in this issue generally, because this is not just a tech platform issue. It's a platform. It's an issue across the political economy where almost every sector is now dominated by a few companies. And we've seen competition decline for the most part, across the board. So we've seen elected officials become an anti- interested in antitrust to kind of under- understand where things went awry. You know, the better deal agenda that the Democrats rolled out earlier this summer identified antitrust as a key pillar of their agenda going forward. I think we're going to be seeing two pushes. One is a push potentially for new legislation and for kind of legislative fixes to change and kind of address the the bad case law that's on the books. But we're also going to see a push for the current agencies to to act more aggressively. Antitrust agencies have pretty extensive latitude to write new merger guidelines, to offer new interpretations of the law. There are certain areas of the law that are pretty untested. And I think a lot of the tech platforms provide introduce novel issues that would give them opportunities to test the law without endangering existing law. I think with a different set of leaders at the agencies, you could see very different enforcement priorities. It also raises a question of transparency. If you're talking about designing new enforcement regimes or new policies or laws, you need a much better window into what these tech companies are doing than we currently have. I mean, right now, people who are trying to figure out what happened in the last election can't even figure out what people saw what ads on Facebook. That's right. I think, you know, in many instances, as these tech platforms have started mediating a growing share of commerce and communications, the laws that we've traditionally had to kind of regulate that, especially in in communications and and media markets, have not really kept, kept up. Lena Khan, thank you so much for speaking to us. Thanks for having me. Lena Khan is director of legal policy for the Open Markets Institute and author of a 24,000-word article for the Yale Law Journal called Amazon's Antitrust Paradox. That does it for this edition of Upfront Tech. If you like what you're hearing, help us out. 
rate and review us in whatever app you use to listen. It really helps us get the word out. Upfront Tech is produced and hosted by me, Brian Edwards Teeker, with help from Lucy Kang. We've been aiming to get an episode up every Friday. We have also been failing miserably. But what we do do is make sure episodes go up here before they go to the airwaves. So if you subscribe, you are always getting the latest. If you just found this, especially if you live in the Bay Area, you might also like the daily show that we produce at KPFA. It's called Upfront, No Tech. We're on live weekday mornings from 7 to 9 a.m. Pacific, streaming at kpfa.org, or over the terrestrial airwaves at 94.1 FM. We also love to hear what you think. Send email to upfront at kpfa.org.